Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to support neurodiverse learners by better understanding how brains work. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Michael Weingarth from Wallingford, Connecticut. The word neurodiversity was created by Judy Singer, a sociologist, and appeared in print for the first time in 1998 in an article written by Harvey Bloom. Those embracing this term hope to move conditions such as autism, ADHD, and Tourette syndrome away from a deficit model to one that celebrates difference. They also wanted to create a new political category that allowed people with various neurodevelopmental disorders to advocate as a group. Since neurodiversity was coined, it has faced controversy while being celebrated by some and rejected by others. In our conversation, Michael and I use the word to describe students who have been diagnosed with learning difficulties or who struggle to understand the standard school curriculum as it is commonly presented due to neurological barriers, which, spoiler alert, is every kid to one degree or another. Michael describes himself as a bioparent, foster parent, and educator. In 2009, he founded the first neuropsychological tutoring and test prep company called Pillars of Learning. After finding Michael on Twitter, I reached out to him for an interview, thinking we could talk about some handy-dandy tips and tricks that teachers can use to reach diverse learners. Instead, as you'll soon hear, we dove deep into what being a so-called neurodiverse learner actually is, the systematic issues that create a fundamentally flawed educational infrastructure, what we need to be doing to help students succeed on the micro and macro level, and a ton about how our brains actually work. Good luck on your newest not-so-impossible lesson with special agent Michael Weingarth. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for joining me and the listeners today. I'm very excited to talk to you. Do you mind starting off by just explaining who you are and what your role in education is? So thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. So I run a neuropsychological tutoring company, which is a kind of weird thing to do, but um, we work with students who have learning difference or suspected learning difference. And what we do is we try to uncover their compensation pattern. Uh, compensation is a term that occurs when, or it's a, it's a concept that happens in a brain when you have a certain pathway that you're trying to access or a certain task you're trying to do, and it can't be done for whatever reason. It's just the functionality isn't there. So we just help these students figure out how to create parallel processing so they can fundamentally, you know, build a little workaround in for themselves uh, and get back to that functionality that's, you know, currently not there for them. But we also do test prep in the same way. And what we found is that functionally, if you imagine that everyone in the world has undiagnosed learning difference, you find that most learners improve pretty quickly and way more efficiently than you do if you just assume that they're all capable and that there's some in a category that are, are different, you know, so... Uh, having that framework for everybody has really helped us um, boost our test prep averages and get academic achievement for students that don't have diagnosed issues. And that's sort of what I'm my sort of what my goal is now is to sort of get out here and talk about the ways in which you know ability and disability are really 
misnomers um, and that what we really need to be looking at is in the life, like intellectual capability as uh, a spectrum, um, but it's a multi-dimensional one. It's not just smarts. Uh, it's, it's not even multiple types of intelligence. It's these ideas that we're not educated enough about the brain. Like if you look for the research, it's only starting to develop that everybody is these wonderfully unique creatures that their, their brains are completely and utterly governed by developmental and unique pathways. Um, so really what I'm trying to get out is this message that the way we think about intelligence is super harmful. And if we really care about the potential of children, we need to really move away from an intelligence or a, a smartness quote unquote type frame. I'm not trying to put you out of a job because I know that you work with students that aren't necessarily able to find what they need in a conventional classroom, but you obviously have a lot of techniques and there's only one of you. So you're willing to share and help all the teachers around the world that are coming to the same conclusion that you are, which is that these labels aren't helpful or if they are helpful, their utility only goes so far. And that when we're trying to be good teachers for individual students, we don't always feel like we know enough about them or have the tools to best help them. So to me, it kind of breaks into two categories, which is how do you know what's going on with a student? Like, how are you able to figure out what they need? And then the second step, of course, and this is where I feel we're often, I feel the most anxiety is, well, now that I have that information, what do I do with that information? So maybe we could start with part one, which is, what are you doing when you're looking at students other than, you know, getting an IEP and saying like, okay, check, 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 check. Like what kind of, I don't want to use the word diagnostic because that seems very clinical, but what, what things are you looking for? Yeah. So this is a huge problem. Uh, I mean, like what you're speaking to, even the question that sort of underlies how much uncertainty there is around learning difference and what it is. And teachers in, in the U.S. at least aren't necessarily required to learn the science of reading or to, to learn literacy as an instructional skill set. So starting with that idea that your, your base method of encountering information in the world, you know, most of which the school is written in some form, um, if you have that leg stripped out from under you, and then you're, you're, you're entering high school, but somehow you've managed to scrape by because of other means, uh, and all of a sudden you hit a subject which puts the other stuff that you've used to compensate in written or oral context where now this, this reading ability is suddenly utterly necessary and you went from being a B-plus student to being a D student, a lot of times like teachers don't have a good explanation for that. They'll blame social issues. They'll say, just not that good at thing X. Um, and really what, what that is is that's like a 15 or, or not 15, that's like a 10-year a latent problem that no one has addressed. Um, so when we talk about what to do with a student, like so much of what we need to be doing is just really committing to, in the U.S. at least, again, just like functional literacy as the goal and like really clear language about like, you know, 98, 99% of children reading and the remaining 1% to 2% armed with all of the supports that we know work for the sort of rare issues of visual and auditory processing that would make even reading with multisensory differentiation or something like Gillingham or other methods that are also approaching it from that multi-domain perspective. What we have 
buried underneath all of this is just so much of a knowledge gap for teachers between saying like, I see executive dysfunction as a diagnosis or as someone has identified, what do I do with that? I can read about it. I can Google it, right? I can go to understood.org. And then you get like maybe a couple worksheet ideas. So what we do fundamentally is try to place everything within an individualized, personalized context. So we collect as much information as we can from the student and from the parents about everything. And this is what also a neuropsychologist would do. You'd get a developmental history. You'd get everything you can about what they're good at, what their hobbies are, what they enjoy. Um, and you'd look for what types of information seem to get digested easily, what type of information gets absorbed, gets played with, is enjoyed in a creative context. And then it's, it's, this is going to really oversimplify it, but it's a strength-based approach where you use those avenues to say, let's try to take that same approach when we deal with something that we know doesn't work and tease apart how and why it breaks down from a variety of perspectives. But the problem is most teachers don't have the time to research, you know, like the science of perception from a really deep level. They don't have time to research cognition and break it apart and look at the ways in which it intersects with emotional processing, with perception itself, right? They don't have time to read up on bias. Um, they don't have time to read up on executive dysfunction or executive functioning in general. And the fact that even to this day, some scientists will tell you there's 26, another will tell you that there's three um, or just one. Um, so <laughs> it's like there's this there's this cliff right in between. I know what, I know what someone else said about this child and how they learn and the other side where you're getting that child to feel self-sufficient and remediated. Um, there is no formula. You, know, you have to literally build a bridge for each child and you have to use everything you know about them to construct it. And they have to believe in it as well. They have to see the architecture to see the blueprint to say, ah, I can build this bridge with you. And then they have to commit to it and know that it's going to be more work and more effort to get these new habits, these new formations built. But oftentimes, uh, being able to quickly pinpoint where the bridge is, you know, if you think about a giant canyon, right, it's like some kids have it way on one side or way to the west, other kids have it way to the east. You have to figure out where the canyon is. And that's really what we do very well, which enables us to build that bridge faster than other people just doing trial and error is we're really skilled at seeing complex learning profiles that adapt very quickly. Once you put the first leg of the bridge in place or the first foundational piece, something will shift. And that's what's uncommon about a lot of students who are twice exceptional, which means both gifted and learning disabled, is that once you put something in place, right, they're going to start using that as soon as they can and build in that new functionality. But then new things that you didn't think were there will emerge or become apparent, I should say, because now they have this new functionality and it's basically uncharted territory for them or it's territory that could only be accessed with a lower level of complexity. So it's, it's super complex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess what my first thought in, in hearing you talk is that that maxim that kids that are good at school become teachers. And oftentimes what that means is that and I'm definitely one of them. I loved school. I was good at school. I became a teacher because I loved school so much is that I have a lot of coping mechanisms because, I mean, every kid needs coping mechanisms. No one's a perfect learner. And I have a lot of coping mechanisms that have allowed me to be good at school as it was presented to me in the, in the 1990s. And I am then now turning around and teaching my kids those coping mechanisms because they helped me, but I only have the coping mechanisms for all the Aviva kids. I really have no idea what coping mechanisms uh, Michael needs. 
I guess a fear that I have is that when I don't have a lived experience or a lived struggle, I don't really have a sense of other than academically where I can help kids. And I mentioned this recently, I was being interviewed on another podcast that like, I knew a principal that said they'd rather hire a B math student as a math teacher than they ever would an A math student as a math teacher, because the B math student, math teacher knows what it's like to struggle with math, but has overcome it. How do we present bridges to kids where we've never had that lived experience of struggle? I mean, case studies, in my opinion, are the easiest way to train uh, individuals to see these. And also, as much education as you can get about the ways in which the brain is so adaptive and so amazing and sort of awe-inspiring in its ability to change, and also the way it grows. Um, you know, I think there's not enough developmental psych taught to people, but even just looking at um, you know current emerging research around the ways in which perception and the midbrain shape the prefrontal cortex and its reaction to stimuli is really changing the way we think about cognition as a whole, um, which used to be solely located. In- okay, I'm going to stop you there. Can you explain that to me? Because that's that is, I think, something important that that I should know. Yeah. So, uh, as a model, cognition was sort of. Uh, for a long time, scientists have thought it's only located in the prefrontal cortex, which is the newest part of our brain, uh, revolutionarily speaking. And that's where uh, all quote-unquote thinking, a higher order reasoning happens. Um, what a lot of research is showing now is that uh, neurons connected to perception um, are connected to immediate decisions that we make because that's how we've sort of looked at I mean, evolutionarily speaking, the hypothesis is that it's connected to threat assessment, right? If you spot something moving in the grass, like you're going to, you might pause, right? If it's big enough um, and your eyes will determine how large that pattern is without you needing to realize that's larger than a squirrel or that's not just a leaf falling. So what's interesting is that perception for a long time has not been thought to be connected to sort of cognition because it doesn't really require much thought. It, they call it the, the term in perceptual science is the moment of perception, where it's this sort of one immediate instant that's not connected to anything else. What a lot of interesting scientists are doing now is they're looking at the thalamus and the perceptual roots, um, which are more in the midbrain and in the brain stem, connected all the way back there, um, and saying that adaptive neural pathways, meaning the, the sort of tra- the path that neurons will travel in your brain to get from point A to point B, basically are governed by energy consumption. Right. So building a path that you don't have access to because of genetics or because of trauma or because of an emotional issue or because of not feeling safe um, is going to impact the pathways that you have and the amount of energy required to travel. them. So that's like a gross oversimplification. Uh, If you're interested, uh, James, I think it's James Shine, who's a scientist in Australia um, at the University of Melbourne, does really awesome tweets on this stuff. And it's like tweet length awesome neuroscience. His pin tweet is about adaptive neural pathways. It's phenomenal. And his papers are all great. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so for, for that stuff, what you're looking at is this idea that developmental functioning happens way before we get into school. And then we're acting as if we can reform all students with a pre-constructed idea. So what you're talking about with this, I have the COVID mechanisms for Aviva, um, you know, how do I encounter present bridges to students that I don't know what it's like for them? The key thing is understanding how much variety and diversity there is. And then from there, we need to develop better practices as a whole of allowing kids to engage in school <laughs> from that same, that strength space where they already have the bridges. And then basically really work as a society to say, like, we don't just let kids have cliffs anymore. Everybody gets a bridge. And that potential, fundamentally, if we care about saving the planet, if we care about large scale change, 
we can't just say like, it's okay that some kids are just C students the whole time. And like school's just not for them. Like the idea that, I mean, all the, the stuff that I love reading about on Twitter is like project-based learning, competency-based ed, um, getting away from teachers going grade lists, all this stuff, which is so important and cool. Um, but it gets to this place where, you know, kids can engage where they can engage. They can be curious. They can use the strengths they have. And on top of that, teachers can then use those tools to teach the things which they think are essential or that they might need later down the line in a context that the kid knows well and understands and can deal with. And the analogy I always use is like a Lego set, right? If you have a present a Lego set with tiny pieces to a two-year-old, they're going to basically chew on the pieces. They might stick them together, but they're, they're fundamentally very small building blocks that the kid will try to stack or push around or throw or whatever, or they're small balls. You know, it really depends on the child's other toys that they have. You present it to an eight-year-old and they're like, where's the instruction set? What should I build if I don't have one, right? It really depends on the type of learner you have. It's a completely different response. That still happens in education. If you show a difference of squares with, you know, you know, the classic example of like x squared minus four, and then you're a math teacher and immediately you're like, oh, that breaks apart into x minus two times x plus two. Um, but if you've never seen an exponent before, right, uh, you may know what a square is because that's an easy concept to teach, right? It's a usual visual spatial metaphor because a square is as tall as it is wide, um, which is also in the show number blocks. It's a phenomenal, like, toddler math show. I don't know if you've, you've seen it, but it's amazing stuff. Um, but you know, that's how they teach squares, but squares themselves are a really easy concept because it's the same number of rows and columns. Um, and kids make squares all the time by using the same number of blocks on their magnet tiles or their building blocks and they make cubes, right? And so they do all these formations using their visual spatial processing and the stuff they make, but then you present them two different squares in this format they've never seen before. And it's, it's bizarre, right? And the, well, why would you even need to break this apart? So you have learners for whom reading and decoding and deciphering what's presented to them in high school or in middle school or whenever they hit that more complex piece and they go blank. And it's not because um, they can't do math or they don't understand the concept. It's because the context in which it's taught isn't accessible. There's no bridge there. And it's just expected that this would make sense to you if you have done the steps that come before it. Um, one of the problems that we have is that teacher training doesn't prepare you to build bridges. It teaches you to lead kids down the road that's already established by what school has determined is the road. I mean, curriculum literally, right, is the course of a race or the path of a race. That's that's really what we're teaching is like, here is this path. And we're not, we don't really know what to do about the bridges because we just have the path. Oftentimes when I'm having interviews with really innovative thinkers and educators, I hear the voice of a specific teacher in my brain. I'm not going to ever mention who they are, but I I have alluded to various l loud conversations I have had with this particular teacher in the past. And so I want to run through what this person's voice is saying in the back of my head. And I was hoping you could address some of those, those issues. So the first is that if we just focus on kids' strengths, then we're never going to shore up their weaknesses. So if we accept that, okay, Billy's really able to engage in this way, but not in that way, and we leave the that way out of it, he's never going to get the chance to build up that skill set. Yeah, this is sort of a common argument I get from a lot of people that aren't used to dealing with struggling learners. And I think the idea here is, like, <laughs> what, what skill sets do you really need? 
I, that's the thing that always drives this, right? In that person's mind, he's making this argument. There's like a distinct amount of knowledge or a distinct set of things you need to go out, out into the world. And if, otherwise, you're going to like spontaneously combust the minute you leave high school if you can't, <laughs> can't do thing X. Um, but the the I think if you if you give kids enough to chew on that they you know sort of intellectually that they enjoy. I think oftentimes they find themselves knowing and realizing their own issues to shore up and then develop any, they can approach them from a point when they have more resilience. A part of the problem is that school doesn't motivate kids by being interesting enough for them to want to do something extra hard. It's hard enough to just sit in a class with 30 other kids. If you had 12 kids and you were all interested in the same stuff and learning about it, and it was an environment where you could be vulnerable. You could feel safe. You had your fundamental needs met. You didn't walk out of the, like and the other, there's also a component of out of the classroom too. If you didn't walk out of the classroom into a world full of systemic oppression, just because you're not white, um, you're, you'd be feeling quite differently about your learning environment. But the, the argument of like kids need to learn stuff is also inherently based in this idea that the world we live in isn't the problem. If the sole purpose of education wasn't to be able for you to get a job because that is like the only way you can survive, then we wouldn't really be having these issues around like arguments of like, they need to be able to do coding, you know, or else they'll, they'll perish. They'll starve to death. <laughs> um, and I think that's you know, sadly, that's, that's sort of the state we're in where it's like, we feel obligated to arm kids with skills and this, this idea that, you know, you need this and, and there's foundational skills. I don't want to get away from that, like literacy and numeracy and the cognitive flexibility that comes with understanding those two things at a really deep level is essential. But, um, you know, we lose a lot of curiosity along the way when we're just forcing kids to do stuff. And I, I, I'm not advocating that school should not be challenging or school should not be hard or kids should only be doing like the exact thing they want to be doing at that moment. Like you're, you're not helping anybody with impulse control if it's just literally do whatever you want for six hours. What I'm talking about is a structured environment where there is learning, there is supervision, there is feedback, there is assessment. It's just not necessarily tied to grades. It's not necessarily tied to this pre-constructed idea of what should be happening. You can't backwards design your way out of structural racism, right? And so you can't backwards design <laughs> out of you know diagnostic problems with behavioral issues getting conflated with cognitive ones, which happens all the time for students just who happen to be uh, not white and female, right? It's like the diagnostic rates for anybody for ADHD versus oppositional defiant or conduct disorder. That's a structural problem with medicine, yet it intersects so much with school and it has profound consequences for the kids in the school that it seems insane to me that we're more obsessed with saying like, kids need to learn calculus or get to pre-calc in order to be college ready. Um, rather than saying like, we really need to teach school as a place where kids can feel safe every day. And also where we can actually see them and their problems as they are, instead of just like, I don't know, like there's so many different fractures within all the things that feed into school that it seems really silly to me that we're spending a lot of energy worried about making do with the best we have and not committing to making education the thing that is able to fix some of those fractures. You know, if, if the center is firm, you can go out from the center and fix the fractures. If the center is just as broken, it's just going to fall out from under. And then the whole thing is just this sinkhole. Oh, I want to come back to that. I want to come back to that. But I want to, uh, I'll keep giving voice to the awful teacher in my head. <laughs> and then we'll come back to those fractures, which I think is really interesting. And I like your metaphor a lot. Um, the next thing is 
if you're making accommodations and building bridges for this one kid, then that's not fair for the other kid because they don't have a bridge or their bridge is shorter or they have a trampoline or whatever it is. Yeah. And I think that's an argument for moving away from age, you know, like age grouping kids by age may not be developmentally appropriate in a lot of ways. And grouping kids also by, you know, (laughs) tracking kids is also like problematic in a lot of ways. Um, And this is, this is really a call for understanding developmental nature of education. If, we really worked at mastery or competency-based ed. All of those, and project-based learning, all of those studies show that kids have significantly more investment, better outcome, not better outcomes, but they're, you know, some of the quote-unquote measurements that we took of those students um, are higher just because student voice, student agency allows navigation of really problematic things with way less effort. Everybody understands that if you're trying to do something that is ambitious, you're going to encounter difficulty. Kids don't say, I'm going to teach myself guitar because it's super easy. They pick it up because they want to learn to play the guitar. Um, so I think what the whole, like, you know, on the fairness issue really is like, yes, the system currently is totally unfair if you have <laughs> one kid who has a great diagnosis because his parents could play, pay for a $10,000 private neuropsychological evaluation, and the other one is still waiting, you know, in a nine-month or six-month queue to get the second eval done since the first one didn't find anything and they're still struggling so much and hate school every day. You're basically looking at a year of life uh, or a year of education that's lost to that one child because they didn't have a, a serious amount of cash available to them. And if there's capital barriers to education, it's just as unfair as one kid getting slightly more attention or slightly better accommodations because the teacher just happens to be more familiar with that kid's particular temperament or, you know, neuro- neurological differences. So I think, when we talk about fairness, um, you can't just talk about it only with the scope of accommodation or special education. You have to look at all the other structural issues that feed into regular education as well. Um, and you can look at the SAT and the ACT, the American College Entrance Exams, or the ones that used to be required pre-pandemic, uh, as the, the sort of pinnacle of this unfairness. And outcomes always favor white families. White, wealthy white families do the best. If you look at the accommodation process for those tests, um, if you could pay enough to get an eval for an evaluator who can tease out what your complex learning profile is, you might get extended time, or you might be able to take it over a course of series of days. And if you can't, you know, if you're a student that doesn't have the money or you're going on a state um, psychoed eval, which isn't going to pick up nonverbal issues, um, you know, so if you're on the autism spectrum, you might not show up at all, and it might not catch it if you have a subtype of dyslexia, which is hard to diagnose. Um, and then you're taking a test, um, which your, your person sitting next to you has the ability to take over three days and you have to take it in three hours. I mean, and also your public school has failed you because they haven't taught you to read. When we talk about fairness, you know, it's like looking at the micro level of the day to day to me again, makes no sense, but that's also because I deal with kids who, uh, they're often they're hitting these walls later in their academic career. And to me, so many of these problems can be avoided by just, better diagnostic tools, more teacher training, um, slightly more perfect, like more counselors that are skilled in administering these tests. And there's ways to look for these tests that don't cost, there's ways to, sorry, there's ways to look for these issues that don't cost $10,000. There's, you, know, you could read maybe 50 books and you could get a person really trained to look for learning difference. The problem is that most of the research we have on neuropsychology is about looking for traumatic brain injury and for neurodegenerative disease. Um, which is great. Don't get me wrong. Like that's important research. We should be doing it, but we also need to be looking at learning difference, you know, structurally, you know, the way that like MIT OpenCog is doing it with 
fMRIs. There's a couple of schools they've partnered with. I think the Carroll School is one uh, in Massachusetts. Um, but like looking at brain-based difference is really important to actually understanding what a kid is dealing with. And the fact that we're only now discovering that it's actual fMRIs of an individual that will reveal that individual's difference seems like the biggest facepalm moment in the past 50 years of education, right? Where it's like only now that we can see the brainwaves can we realize each child is unique. So it's a long-winded way of saying, yes, it, it is unfair, but it's it's really built in an extremely unfair system. And the degree of unfairness experienced with that example is, is minute compared to the larger structural unfairness of it all. The other one is this defensiveness, which is when we talk about the structure of education being fractured, and we talk about how teachers have failed many students. And like, even I, who, if you asked me, like, do you think teachers and education have failed students? I'm like a hundred percent. And yet when, when you're talking, like there is a part of me that's like, well, I mean, we only have so much time and we only have the structure that we, and you know, like I care a lot. I do. I care a lot. And it's, there is that cognitive dissonance, I think, that a lot of us teachers feel where we recognize the problems and we recognize the barriers, but because we are still electing to be part of the system, it's really hard for us to hear the very valid criticisms of that system. And especially, I know, I was talking with a speech and language pathologist who says that her biggest barrier for helping kids is teachers letting her into the classroom because they are worried about being judged for their teaching. And so rather than allowing her to monitor their kid in a natural setting and find ways to help this kid, they, they feel really threatened by that idea that it's somehow a personal failing versus a systematic failing. And so do you, how do you find that it, you can get to receptive teachers or get teachers to a place where they are receptive to this. I think, like you said, the more you can talk about systems, uh, the better. And the more also when you talk about, like, I, I don't blame any teacher who hasn't been instructed in literacy for not being able to teach a kid to read. Like that is, they, they've put those adults who have chosen to do really awesome work in an impossible position. And that's, that's on state level policymakers. That's on federal policymakers. Uh, and that's really why the need for collective action and organizing has to go around any discussion of special education is like, it just needs way more attention. And also all learners are going to benefit from better special ed because everyone, if you dig deep enough, is going to have some degree of cognitive inefficiency. It's just a question of being able to find it. And that's, that's the functional difference right now is that education has been able to skate by in the U.S. by segregating, you know, special ed and regular ed uh, as if there's this cut off randomly that you hit and then you're in this different category and it's 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 primarily budgetary if, if there was just a way to actually say like we know how to deal with all these issues and we're going to train people to do it then we would but that's going to cause it's, it's just such a massive cost and the amount of change it takes is overwhelming to most people but to go back to your point about teachers um with that cognitive dissonance uh the need for collective action has to be there on any of these discussions and hitting the idea that you know, teachers are responsible for the day to day, but they're not, they have so little autonomy relative to other professionals that we expect. Like you look at a pediatrician, like pediatrician, like you, you describe 10 things that your child is doing, like they have ADHD. Here's a prescription. Here's some medication. Get out of my office. And like, that's it. 
And that's wild to me that we trust a doctor to do this because they went to school for eight years, sorry, four years, and then they did residency, you know, since they did undergrad, graduate, and then graduate school is the only one that's medically specific. And then they do four years or three years of residency and then uh, an internship, and then they're off, right? And, like, it's a really long process. It's 10 years. But in 10 years, then you get to be fully autonomous. Teachers, you do four years of undergrad. Maybe you get a master's, right? So you're doing six years, and everything you do has to be scripted and run by everybody else. There's no, it's like hardly any autonomy. And the only time that we're going to give it to teachers is when there's a pandemic and no one can do anything and we have no plans in place and it's not evidence reviewed or whatever. Sorry, it's not an evidence-based study that you're using to say that you're going to do it. You're just going to, you know, now you get the autonomy when everything is falling apart and you can outsource the blame. So to me, like the idea that four extra years gets you that degree of autonomy, if we're convinced that teachers need 10 years to be able to be fully independent decision makers, then just like get them more training for four more years, make it free and let's create the best public education system possible. But if until then, like teachers are in this, they're just stuck between the friction of this isn't enough. And I also don't know what else to do to help. Right. And that's not anyone's fault. Well, it's, it's some people's fault, but it's not teacher's fault. Uh, and it's not parents' faults either. That brings me to going back to those fractures, because I thought when we were going to start this conversation that we'd talk about the different ways that kids are neurodiverse, and then you'd have some concrete steps that teachers could bring into the classroom about how to better meet their needs. And uh, we've had a very rich conversation that's basically like, well, the answer is we need to have collective bargaining and we need to be, you know, <laughs> advocating for political and social and economic change. <laughs> as much as I want to take the matches and burn down the system, a lot of my listeners still need to go back into that classroom on Monday and, and meet the learners that they have are there small things that we can be doing knowing that they're just stop gaps, knowing they're just band-aids that can make a kid's experience better in our classrooms? I'd say 90% of it is just being able to have enough, like creating enough knowledge to be able to, or seeking enough knowledge to be able to see learning difference as it exists and understand it as it exists and not read behavioral, not read you know, the societal or the intellectual judgments upon it. Um, I, I have a pin tweet in my profile about like brands are basically like a, a individual forest and that the footpaths that you create carve out these different ways of thinking that idea. If you can learn to see each child as a unique entity, that's creating these paths and that some may not be accessible. Some might be easier than others. A lot of that is really about understanding the ways that developmental psychology intersects with executive functioning, which is sort of executive functioning has been really leaned on heavily in the social emotional learning stuff that's come up since, you know, George Floyd was murdered and since the, the Black Lives Matter protests became more visible in the U.S. in the summer. So I think social emotional learning has sort of co-opted executive functioning as like regulate, inhibit, and that's pretty much it, self-awareness. Um, in reality, executive functions are, they're ways that brains collect information and deal with that information and send it to one place or another, uh, sort of a really oversimplified way of talking about it. In my opinion, understanding executive functions from a developmental framework of saying like this age might this might be capable and this age like this is definitely capable, that's huge. But then also digging enough to understand that a lot of the diagnostic measures we have, even from people that are graded it, most of what they're doing to confirm what a test shows is looking at student work and saying like, here's what's going on. Like this problem was different. Let me 
tease that apart from what I see on the test. Like tests don't spit out super accurate results. Um, a really good eval, a neuropsychologist can administer like seven or eight tests. It's not like there's one test which is like, boom, you have dyscalculia. Uh, you know, there, there might be a couple, actually, I should say. I should rephrase that. There are clear-cut cases of like, this is very obviously this thing. But it takes a lot of experience in case studies to know that. Um, there's a really good book that I would just want to pump for everybody. Um, it is Executive Function and Child Executive Function and Child Development. It's by Daniel and Marcy Yeager, and it's from 2013. And it's one of the better books I've read on executive functioning that makes it simple enough for parents to understand without um, really dragging it down to the level of like, it's these only three things. It talks about how it intersects with almost every area of your life and how we teach it very explicitly in uh, preschool. Uh, and that it sort of drops off once we hit first grade and expect children to be able to sit in seats for a long time. And then we offer very little support of it from that point on. Uh, for me, that was a foundational shift uh, in how I approached, you know, I read this book in 2015, I think. But for me, that was a foundational shift in how I understood a lot of aspects of things which I used to ascribe to processing disorders or, um, you know, looking for deeper diagnostic issues. But looking at just executive dysfunction um, really changed how I thought about how kids organize information and how they deal with pattern seeking. So that's that's one thing I which I would say is to, to look at and know that. Uh, that's going to help any teacher who deals with kids who struggle uh, because it's going to provide you a lot of context. It's going to say, ah, like, part of this might be about um, shifting out of one activity or another or shifting from one mode of processing to another. And I think that how deep the executive functions are, that they're not just surface level behaviors you can monitor. They're actually also cognitive, meaning going from reading to math back to reading is executive functioning. Um, it is not quote unquote higher order reasoning as most people assume that it is. So I think that's helpful for teachers. Uh, I don't want to get prescriptive because the problem is that once you do that, you create these ways in which you're just, replicating the old way of, of creating an IP, you know, and um, IPs are really functional for some people and for others, they're just a way of lowering the bar, which is really marginalizing and horribly dismissive. I think the most important thing, the easiest thing for teachers is understanding executive function from a developmental standpoint. Um, and the second thing I would say is looking at just dyscalculia, dyspraxia, and dyslexia, just trying to understand how these things manifest, um, and especially in twice exceptional learners where they're really hard to spot and they're incredibly adaptive and they might show up in some places. Um, you're going to see really bright kids compensate very quickly and cover this up. And also, like just like anything you can read about the emotional consequences of being a gifted child with a learning issue, um, the ways in which we wait smartness and intelligence um, and the expectations that come with that. And then the, for anybody that's emotionally sensitive, knowing that there's something you just can't do, um, it carries a burden that is really hard to imagine as like a six-year-old because we're all teachers, adults, fully formed, looking at this and not understanding this might be a totally overwhelming feeling for this child where the inability to do a simple task might mean that it's way easier to act out. It's way easier to draw attention to themselves or to lash out at somebody than it is to actually deal with it. I think a lot of teachers know that intuitively, but I don't think that there's an assumption that it's happening all the, I think it's happening way more often than everyone assumes it is. Um, and that's because again, I think our definitions of ability and disability are really what needs to be revisited. And you, you get at that. If you read enough of this stuff, it all starts to blur together and it's, it's a spectrum. It's not a, uh, it's not like a, a cutoff, right? There's no threshold. There's just, all types of ability, all types of disability. And as you increase the complexity of a task, 
you're going to find different ways that efficiency and inefficiency emerge in terms of a person's ability to think. So the idea that we can measure ability and disability leads a lot of teachers to believe that taking a test or getting a diagnosis fixes a lot. Um, and I think that's the other problem is that teachers feel like it's, it's you know, regular ed teachers feel like, oh, it's in the special ed teacher's hands now, and I just get feedback from them. And in reality, there's a lot that regular ed teachers could do if they had the information, if they had the training, and also special ed teachers, if there was you know, ever a way to get them a lot of the tools they need, there's tremendous ground you can gain in a short amount of time. So one of the things that I did a lot with my students, like when I was working with my younger kids who were like 13, 14, is we talked a lot about what was happening in their bodies and in their brains as they developed. And I got a lot of feedback that was really helpful and and also really positive for my students. So I talked a lot about like, well, what's happening in your brain when you yell at your mom and then you go slam the door, but you don't remember why you were mad in the first place? Like what's happening and thinking through that and being like, okay, these are the reasons why you're having these feelings. And then sometimes you won't be able to stop and think and be like, oh, I'm just having this reaction because of these hormonal and cognitive reasons. But sometimes maybe you will, and you'll be able to take a moment to calm down and process and understand what's happening to you. So now that I have the feedback I'm getting from you, which is understanding more about the brain, not necessarily as I was looking at from the emotional, but from the cognitive more intellectual, academic-focused part, do you think that that same strategy would be helpful, like talking to kids about how their brains are developing and what's happening in their brains as they encounter problems? Yeah, I mean, everything we do is rooted in educating the child as much as possible about what they're seeing. Like, you know, this is like, talk to us as much as possible in as great detail as possible about why it's difficult for you, and then we just try to make sure that we're tagging that with the associated component, right? So if it's a visual processing disorder, right, it's like everything around certain types of stimuli is just not seen. It's incredibly difficult to pick it apart perceptually or that it can't be manipulated once it is perceived. And then we're talking about, like, what are you seeing? Are you seeing numbers? Are you seeing letters? Just really basic stuff like that to undo the emotional and the emotional components really essential here. I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss that. What you're doing is absolutely uh, a huge component of being able to successfully remediate these issues because once uh, a student has discovered that they're not good at something, the emotional cue that this thing is bad and I'm not good at it um, becomes inexorably tied to it. And that's the other thing about learning about the midbrain context, the context in which something happens, especially the emotional context ties the content to it like pretty quickly, uh, way faster than we imagine. So negative educational experiences create these loops for students where they avoid certain tasks or certain classes or certain things because it's not safe. That's extreme examples. But even at a micro level of that, you know, enough of that is going to signal to you like I shouldn't try. So talking to a kid like, you know, like I I can't see this thing. uh, And then like, why can't you see it? Is it letters? Is it words? You know, is it variables? Is it variables with exponents? Is it as a is it a rational function, which is a polynomial on top of another, right? Like figuring out if they can pinpoint precisely where it goes from being able to see it to not, and then also naming the emotional cue that comes up actually allows them to create space for thought, which is mindfulness. And all of this is, is like basic cognitive behavioral therapy in an education lens, which is, again, why it's astounding to me that we're not paying teachers more because so much of this is like you're, you're a therapist, you're a teacher, you're all these other things. But like getting a child to name when I see this, I have this unthinking reaction to it is how you create a parallel process. And a lot of the work we do is just doing that 
a lot along a, a series of connected pathways that are not currently available to a student saying like, when you do like, after we've gone through this first knot and we've sort of untied it, right. We get to this next one and then we say, okay, what's difficult about this now? And they can lean back on the prior process to iterate it, to say like, I'm seeing this, this is, makes me feel this way. I know that I've seen this before and I've undone the previous thing, right? So it sort of gets longer and longer and they get more practiced at that. Um, it doesn't ever make it necessarily as easy or, a, you know, a default pathway that they're going to do, but that's an essential skill. And in my opinion, that's really valuable educational experience for anybody just to be able to know themselves that way and undo something, which used to feel immediately tied to something where it's like, you use the example of being so mad and hormonal that you slam the door and you're, you're screaming. Right. So it's like, if you can interrupt that, even just a, for a second to be like, I'm pretty mad. I'm feeling mad right now. Right. Like, you can maybe just realize, like, I don't want to feel bad, <laughs> you know. And then, and then there's that that moment where the kid can retake and regain control. And I think for me, I see so many kids invigorated by that concept of agency and that ownership. And then once they realize they can do this, so much of the work becomes easier because it stops feeling the the emotional negativity that's tied to those past failures sort of fades. And then now there's this hope of like this doesn't always have to feel like this for me. Um, and that's, that's the thing which I think really helps me continue to do the work, um, even in the face of stuff that I find really unpleasant, um, or like, you know, deal with um, standardized testing components, which I don't think are fair or equitable at all, and I'm happy that they're, they're finally fading away. Um, but I think for me, like, seeing that, not, I don't want to call it like an aha moment, but like, actually seeing a kid realize, like, hey, I can interrupt this thing, which used to feel like I would be run by it for hours, and now I'm not running away from what's difficult anymore. Um, that's, that's to me, like the, the nature of why this is so important for everyone else to know too, that like all teachers could get to that point. The issue really is time and resources, right? It's like, you need the time to learn it. You need the time to dedicate to each child. And that's, I left the classroom because I found so much more traction in the one-on-one environment. And I I really couldn't stand to, (laughs) to kind of like be a person who, didn't engage at that level of depth in case that's not clear from this conversation. Like I have a a hard time staying at 30,000 feet, you know? I, and I think a part of that also goes back to the issue of autonomy. Like I would be able to have those conversations with my kids where we talk about arguments and what's happening in the brain and what's happening in your body when you're arguing. And then I was able to make a content connection where I had this activity that was based on the Renaissance and each kid had like, bad information and the other had, kid had good information and their their task was they had to argue with each other about who was right and who was wrong. Um, and so I was able to make that pedagogical connection. So if some parent came in and was like, how dare you spend this time talking to my kid about arguing with me versus doing the Renaissance, I'd be like, but no, they're arguing about Leonardo da Vinci. But in reality, we're like actually going over what I thought were important social emotional skills, which is like, how do you effectively disagree with someone without, and noticing what's happening in your body when you, when you get to that point where you can no longer accept new information because you've just, your vision's gone red. Um, and obviously I think it's still really artificial. It wasn't individualized. It was the same thing for 30 kids in the class were doing the same thing. So I wasn't able to individualize it to each kid. So it was an umbrella kind of band aid. But it, that autonomy and what I could do in the classroom allowed me to make those connections where I know not everybody had that, you know, they had that script they had to read about Leonardo and that was it. 
Yeah. I think that's, again, like that ability to individualize and, you know, like in, in the U S there's the, the big term is like differentiating, right. For students that struggle. Um, if you can become sort of like a master differentiator or a master individualizer, right. If we could provide that degree of training and that's, that's what this whole, like there's a lot of nonprofits currently funding a lot of money into the idea of personalized learning, which is like a computer does that rather than a person, uh, which to me is baffling that we're even wasting money doing this. But, um, you know, a lot of the problems with that is that you can't, you can't react fast. Maybe you could react fast enough, but, um, a lot of the times, like the, we're not that far from being able to do that in person. We just need like maybe a little bit more training and a little bit more knowledge and, and more time to spend with each kid or small groups of kids rather than, you know, like it, it, what you're talking about, it, it, I don't want to use the term bandaid because it's still really good. Like there's the, the idea of bandaids here is like, you know, <laughs> that we have this gaping wound that we're never going to be able to fix. And like, that's, it's true to some extent, right? I don't want to, I'm, I'm a big cynic and I don't think that we can really fix education as a whole in the U S but I do think that there's hope and there's great, there's bright spots in it for sure. And you see that with a lot of schools that have done project-based learning, um, that have done competency or mastery based ed where a student just graduates regardless of how they get there. That's just what they do. And they really support the individual concepts like that, that allow us to get to that level of individualization, I think are what is going to make that's, that's like, to me, the, the pathway we should take if we're really interested in actually salvaging anything that we currently have. If we're not trying to burn things down, that's, to me, is where we can see the most difference with children actually achieving their potential. Well, on that less cynical note, I am going to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and, and sharing your experiences. How can people find out more about you or follow you? Yeah, well, my website's got all my information about the tutoring we provide. That's at www.pillarsoflearning.com. Um, and then my Twitter feed is full of me screaming into the void about everything that I find to be unjust or, or strange or funny. Um, and I'm, I've got a couple of threads on there about a lot of what we do, um, which are useful for teachers to read just because they'll probably know some of the functional vocabulary. So that's at Learning Pillars um, on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.